The following recording is part of a six-week series entitled Rooted, a study through the Book of Colossians at Holy Cross Church. Let's look at our passage for tonight in Colossians 4, uh, verse 2 to 6. We're going to finish up our time in Colossians um, with this passage. Up to this point, as you may have gathered, we've talked a lot about what does it mean to have this new identity How does it affect our lives? How does it affect our community that we live in? How does it affect our behavior, the content of our conversations? How does it affect the the conduct with um, uh, one another in the church? Every talk has been about the truth of, of God's teaching and how it affects our life personally and internally. Now, Paul is going to shift focus and he's going to talk about how does this affect how we treat people outside of the church. And this is it's a, a real a good switch here and and it's not so internal, but it's gonna change our mindset to think about how does the conduct of our life, what things should we be thinking about as we work, as we play, as we go to school, as we uh, spend time in our neighborhood, as we interact in our community, um, all these things. So he addresses the Christian's conduct among those whom he calls outsiders. Now, this can be a very divisive word. It can be, well, let's be honest. If you were someone being called an outsider, it seems like that's kind of a negative word, isn't it? Like those people on the outside. But let me help clarify what what he's talking about here. Paul is not trying to be divisive and divide people and use this word as a derogate in a derogatory way. But simply he is saying up until this point, if you believe these truths in Christ, of what he has done, his sinless life, died on the cross for your sins, not counting your sins against you by faith, he's talking about all these things. If you believe these things, you have this relationship with Jesus, and he's changing your life from the inside out. But not everybody believes that, right? We all agree that, right? Not everybody believes that. And those are people he calls outsiders. It's not a word, it's not a derogatory word, it's not a bad word. Um, you may be an outsider. You may consider yourself someone on the outside. If you're with us tonight, welcome. Thank you for coming. You're amongst friends, um, and you're welcome to walk in this journey with us. You may be one of those people who are on the outside. But in no way does this mean that you are less equal, less important, or some way weird or unapproachable. You're a friend. Um, so that is what Paul's talking about. He's, just, he's talking, how do we live? How does a, what is a Christian's conduct supposed to look like towards outsiders, towards people who don't know, believe, and trust in Jesus. Paul has been addressing them up to this point about Jesus, and now he appropriately addresses how they're going to treat people that do not believe in what they believe. Before we get to talk about outsiders, we're going to talk about that for a little bit as we walk through this passage. I want to talk about insiders first. So if you're an outsider, just take a deep breath. This isn't going to be about you for a second. I'm going to t- let's talk about insiders, those who up to this point, consider themselves, yes, this is talking about me, someone who knows Jesus, believes in his life and what he has done, and actually trusts in his work on the cross for my salvation. He's forgiven my sins, and I profess those things. I confess it to you, to others, and to people around me. This is who I am. I am a Christian, right? So if you are, are that person, you're an insider. I want to look at some statistics about insiders, about Christians in general. Did you know that 85% of people surveyed in general, consider themselves to be an insider, to consider themselves to be a Christian. Now, that's not elaborated a lot, so, but just generally, if there was a box to check, 85% of people in the United States 
would say, yes, I'm a Christian. 78% of those Christians say that their relationship with Christ is very important to their daily lives. 78%. 64% of those Christians, still talking about insiders, have asked God to forgive their sins. So have come to a place in their life where they have recognized their sin and, re- and came to repentance of it and said, God, I don't want to live this way anymore. I confess my sins to you and I ask for forgiveness of those sins and help me to be a better person. So that's 64%. So we're looking at those numbers and that looks pretty encouraging, right? I'm encouraged by that. I mean, a good deal of people say they're Christian and, and a, good still, a good deal still, majority of people have come to a place where they have repented of their sins and asked God's forgiveness. But here's more. Of these Christians, 18% claim to be committed to investing in their own spiritual development in some way. 22% say that they're dependent on God in their daily lives. 21% believe that spiritual maturity requires a vital connection to a community of faith. 65% rarely or never pray with other people. 38% of insiders never pray by themselves. 35% have verbally confessed their sins to another believer in the past months. Only about a third. And and about a third, 37%, read the Bible outside of church. And here's one more. 3% have come to a place where they say, I've completely surrendered my life to Christ and submit to His will daily and trust Him with my life completely, and him alone for the forgiveness of my sins. So of those 85%, only 3% of people say, I'm completely and utterly dependent on God. So those are pretty low, all of those. And here's one more. Lastly, 59% say that they have shared their faith with other people. So what's going on here? Let's look at this. Let's just look at these general things here. The things that Christians do the most out of anything, and I found this surprising. The thing that Christians do the most out of anything is tell other people that they're Christians. So looking at this in others, most Christians will talk about their faith to outsiders, yet they, they rarely, if ever, talk to God. They, they're not committed to their spiritual de- development in any real significant way. They're not com- committed to Christian community. They don't read their Bible, and they don't have accountability to talk about their struggles and their sins with other people. And three out of every hundred Christians surveyed say that they've come to a place in their life where they've completely surrendered their life to God and trust in Him completely and utterly. Now let's talk about outsiders. Here's what I've heard when I talk to outsiders and and have had many conversations with people who don't know Jesus, don't believe, trust, or, 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 or know him. And I say, what do you think about Christians? And they say, Christians are hypocrites. Christians are dishonest. Christians are inauthentic. They contradict themselves. They act like they're better than other people. If you feel this way about Christians, you're right. Christians are that way. And looking at those statistics, there's no wonder why. 
Because the thing that Christians, insiders, do most is tell other people about their faith, and the thing that they do the least is talk to God, read their Bible, get connected in community, confess their sins to other people. And yet they continue to relate to outsiders in a way of, I'm a Christian, and you're not, and you should know about, about Jesus. Most Christians are like that. And if I could make an, an apology on behalf of, of all Christians, I would, I would say... If you consider yourself an outsider that have been hurt by the hypocrisy and dishonesty and inauthenticity of Christians, I would say I apologize on behalf of all Christians that they have done that, that they have not shown you honesty and love and care and humility and grace, and they've pretended in so many ways to be something that they're not. Paul says in verse 5 to insiders, he says, Walk in wisdom among outsiders. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And here's the great thing. The Bible is going to assume that if you have put your faith in Christ and trust in Him, know Him, consider yourself a Christian, you are going to be in circumstances that you are going to be around people who don't believe those things. And isn't that true? I mean, look, think, of the, think of your workplace. So many people, right, that probably don't believe what you believe. Think of your neighborhoods. Think of your school. Think of your neighbor. Think of, think of the marketplace. I mean, the Bible is assuming that we are going to conduct our lives and we are going to be around people who are not Christians. And this is different from the fact that a lot of people would say, a lot of Christians might even say, do whatever you can to separate yourself from people who don't know Jesus, from non-Christians, from outsiders. Spend as much time as you can with Christians. But here, Paul is saying, he is assuming that these believers, these Christians, are going to be spending an ample intense amount of time with people who don't believe those very same things. And so he says to them, walk in wisdom. We're going to talk about what that looks like. What are we to do concerning our involvement in the world around us? Paul says, he says, redeem it. Paul says in verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Making the best use of. I love this phrase. It's translated a couple times in the New Testament. Make the best use of. And we use a bunch of words in English to describe one word in the Greek, and that word in the Greek is redeem. It means redeem the time. It means to buy it back. The time that has got away from you, you you buy it back and you make it your own. Think about sin. Regarding sinners, Jesus says that by his death on the cross, he has redeemed sinners. They belong to, to sin, and Jesus said, I'm buying you back, and the currency that I'm using is my very own blood. And I know that's really weird, right? Here's a bottle of my blood. No, Jesus is saying, with my body, with the, the sacrifice on the cross, I'm buying you from, from sin. And I'm taking you back, and now you belong to me. That's redemption. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. The Bible talks about it in, in, in beautiful ways. And now Paul is saying, we should do that with our time. We should buy it back. We should make it ours. We should own it. We should not waste it. We should redeem it. How do we do this? Our passage encourages us to do three things. It says to be watchful, to be prayerful, to be thankful. And these are the three adjectives that Paul uses when we are to consider how we are to conduct ourselves among outsiders. A wise person always keeps watch on their their heart, on their emotions, on their intentions, on their words, on their behavior. Someone who's steadfast in prayer. Prayer Prayer is commanded in Scripture. It's a duty. Of those who have confessed Christ, it's a duty of Christians to pray without ceasing. 
to make sure that there aren't things that come into our life that disconnect us from personal communion with God. And he says, be thankful. Do you know that when you know, our troubles have a way of just getting us into a mood that it's so hard to just get us out of? Have you ever tried to be grumpy and be thankful at the same time? It is very difficult. I was really in a bad mood one day and my sister came up to me and she just started singing. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. It was Jen. And I was like, shut up, Jen! Right? Because I, be th- I didn't want to be in a good mood and I didn't want to be thankful. I wanted to, be, I wanted to have self-pity. I wanted to be grumpy. I wanted to just sulk in what was going on there. You want to keep watch on your heart. Paul says, be thankful. Be disciplined in giving thanks for what God has graciously given you. And try to be in a bad mood when you do that. It's pretty difficult. And here's the duty of all Christians, to live in such a way with non-Christians as to not give them a reason to affirm their own prejudices about what Christians are like. We do this in our speech and in our conduct. Here's what he says about our speech. He says, our speech should be seasoned with salt. Every time you talk, you're serving someone a meal, and it should be delicious, it should be seasoned, it should be tasteful, it should be yummy, it shouldn't be sour or bitter or gross. And here's, and here's something important to remember, because I think we, this could be confusing sometimes, so what does that mean? Do we need to talk about Jesus in everything that we do? Do we need to go around evangelizing and, and preaching the gospel? Every time we, we talk with someone, the only way to do, say a good thing, do we have to tell them about Jesus in every conversation? And I would say to that, I would say, you don't have to talk about Jesus to talk like Jesus. You don't have to talk about God's grace to talk like God's grace or talk with grace. And so our speech, the way that we talk with people should be seasoned. It should be tasteful. It should be gracious. Jesus always did this. His conversations were always seasoned with salt. Uh, Here's a little example. uh, A friend comes to me with a, a troubled heart one day, really discouraged, struggling with some sin, um, not knowing how to get out of it, struggling with his faith, doubting a lot of things about, about Christ, about his position. He's just having a really hard time. And I sit down with him, and I listen to his story, and I tell him, I just look back in his eyes and say, it looks like you're making a lot of excuses for yourself. I think you need to stop doing that. You need to get up, and you need to start living out the confession of your faith with courage and boldness. And that's what you need to do. And he looked back at me and said, you're exactly right. Man, you're exactly right. I have been just wasting my time. I've been dilly-dallying. I've been complaining about everything. This is exactly what I need to do. I need to trust God. I need to have courage. I need to get up, and I need to continue to walk towards him with faith. Thank you so much for telling me that. I'm so glad we had this conversation. About a day or two later, my mom calls me. She's on the phone, she's talking with me, and she says, and she starts, you know, this is, this is always a good thing when your mom starts sharing, you know, how, how all the hard things going on in her life, right? You, know, you just want to say, tell me more, you know. 
So she's telling me, you know, she's struggling with her faith. She's having a hard time. There's some things in her life that, I, you know, she needs to be doing differently and doesn't have the courage to do it. And, I, and a light bulb goes off. I say, I know how to do this. Dude, I'm such a good counselor. I, I, I know, like, when someone comes to me a problem, I give them the answer, and they just run with it. I mean, I've got a great track record. People listen to me. I give advice. They go. Their lives are changed and better for it. And so my mom's telling me these things, and I'm listening, and she stops talking. And I say, Mom, you need to stop making excuses for yourself. You need to get up. You need to take some. You need to have courage and just go and follow God and do what you need to do and stop whining about it. And there's a pause. And I'm kind of getting the, the feeling that, uh, was that the right thing to say? I can't remember. <laughs> and this is what my mom says to me. And I remember like it was yesterday. She says, Peter, you're not allowed to call me Peter, but my mom calls me Peter. Peter, I have no doubt that you're going to be a great pastor someday. But for now, <laughs> you really have to learn how to talk to people if you want them to listen to you. And I was just like, what? This didn't work. What happened? Sometimes I feel like there's a one-to-one ratio for learning how to approach situations. And this is what I mean. For every situation, there's like a new way to approach it and a new thing to say. And if I try to use that strategy with the next situation, I'm lost. And I mess up. And I get it wrong. And I hurt someone's feelings. I give horrible advice. I miss an opportunity. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying... You should, you, should be, you should be watchful, prayerful, and thankful so that you know how to answer people's questions. Because everything, every situation is going to be very different. And if you try to apply this just catch-all strategy for reaching people's hearts, you're going to fail. Now, doesn't that seem like extremely overwhelming for you? Look at all the different problems in people's lives. Look at all the different problems in your life and in my life. And you're thinking, how do we even begin to speak wisdom into those things? We need to be watchful, prayerful, and thankful. These are the things that can keep us in wisdom. Not everyone is the same. There are Christians who really, truly do not have a relationship with Christ. They don't know Jesus, but they think that they are Christian. There are Christians who love Christ, but they're struggling deeply with sin. There are people who who are outsiders that are very hostile to Christianity, who are angry towards God. There are outsiders who are skeptical, but they really want to know. They're eager to know the truth, and they want someone to help them and to learn. There are people who have had their hearts trampled on by by abusers, by Christians, by non-Christians, by boyfriends, by girlfriends, by parents. There are people that are struggling with deep emotional scars. How do you talk to people like that? How do you talk to someone who's angry? How do you talk to someone who's really emotionally available, but they just put up walls. And they're act, they act like they're just solid rocks, but really they're crying inside. Everybody is different. Everybody is struggling with something different. How are you going to walk in wisdom with people like that? How do you even know how to approach people? That's why Paul says we need to be watchful, prayerful, and thankful. So that we know how to talk to people when the opportunity comes. Jesus knew how to talk to every single kind of person. You think of the lady at the well that came up to Jesus and was acting all just, you know, smart and intelligent and she knew what was going on and she knew God's promises and she was living a lie. She was living in a sinful relationship. She was living a needy life, finding her needs from other men. 
And Jesus knew exactly how to talk to that. Look at Zacchaeus, you know, this educated, this educated man, but an outsider. Jesus knew exactly how to talk to this person. His disciples. Look at the Pharisees, the religious leaders that were just so proud and so self-righteous and so pompous about what they believed. Jesus knew exactly how to talk to these people, and he never sinned. Never got out of hand, never did the wrong thing, never said the wrong thing, never missed an opportunity. He was watchful, prayerful, and thankful. And we need to be the same way. The challenge in our speaking is to be able to answer people's questions, give a reason for our faith, and when appropriate, and when it when appropriate to show the unreasonableness of their beliefs without causing prejudice to our cause. Look at first Peter in chapter three, what it says. You can just listen to it in verse fifteen. He said, Peter says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know what Christians are really good at? That first part of that verse. Hey, if someone ever asks you about what you believe, you should be able to confidently tell them exactly what you believe. Christians are really good at that. We're, we're, we're really good at just spitting out things really quickly and giving them an answer. And very, very bad at the second part. Did you even know that that verse had a second part? How, how, I, how often do I hear this verse? That if you believe, you should be able to give an account of the truth that is in you. I've heard this a hundred times. But I don't think I've ever heard the second part of that verse. But do it with gentleness and respect. Oops. We miss that part a lot. With gentleness and respect. We should be able to confidently give answers to people we should be, conf- be able to call people out on the ways that they are thinking in error or in full, you know, as a fool or in just plain wrong. We should be able to do that, but we should do it with gentleness and respect. Each and every one of us who find ourselves relating to the previous three chapters in Colossians are now expected to engage in God's mission with Paul. And one of the guiding principles in our vision as a church is to engage in God's mission. You've heard me say this before. Maybe you've read it online. Maybe you haven't heard me say it before. But this is one of the guiding principles of what we believe to be so central about how we are to live. And that is to engage in God's mission. This means that we recognize that if we confess Christ as our Savior and Lord, then we are in a position, in a privileged position, to consider a question. And the question is this. How do the mundane, everyday things of my life fit into God's mission? How do I fit in into what God wants to communicate to the world around me? How do I fit in into what God wants to do with people who are on the outside, who don't know Him? We should be thinking about that question. You should think about it yourself. And Paul is uttering the same concept. He says, if you've been transformed, you're preachers of the good news. Do you have to know all the answers? No, you don't have to know everything. That's the great thing. You don't have to know everything. I have a master's in Bible, and I don't know a lot. Some of you are extremely smart and even smarter than I am, and you don't know everything. And some of you are just beginning in this journey, and you know you don't know everything. And that's okay. You can find out. You can learn. You can read good books. You can read good fiction. You can read good nonfiction. You can spend time stretching your mind and stretching your creativity and stretching your heart to know the truths of God and the world around you. You spend time in God's Word by learning what does God say Who is he? What's his character? What's his nature? How can I love him? How can I honor him and live for him? You could learn by spending time in quality community with others. Having good conversations. 
asking hard questions, allowing yourselves to be vulnerable with other people, confessing your sins to one another, being thankful, being watchful, being prayerful. There's so much that we can do. Spend time in prayer. Now I want to talk about specifically, how do we walk in wisdom? Are there some things that we can think about in our day that can give us a gauge or a litmus test about that help us determine are we walking in wisdom or are we walking as a fool or are we just walking into traps? Because let's be honest, we all find ourselves in situations where we are not wise in our dealing with the world around us. As Christians, as insiders. If you're an insider, there have been times in your life where you're saying, I probably should not have done that. It dishonors God. It makes me look bad. It ruins my testimony. It ruins my credibility. We've all, we've all done that. So, what I want to do now is briefly, about 30 seconds on each one, uh, I was reading through a book called Radical Reformation by Mark Driscoll. And I read this several years ago when I was on a mission trip to Norway. And it changed the way that I see... Well, it encouraged me and exhorted me and challenged me in the way that I see my relationship with the world around me. And what he does is he gives nine questions that we should ask ourselves to figure out if we're walking in wisdom in how we conduct ourselves with the world around us, specifically with outsiders. We all spend time with outsiders, right? Some of you have more, more friends that don't know Christ than do. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think you, need to, you should have friends with people. You should love it. You should love everyone. You should love Christians. You should love non-Christians. You should seek to be a part of their life, to love them, to be their friend, to respect them and honor them. And some of you do such a good job at that. And some of us can do, do better at that. Hey, how do, you, how do you live around your non-Christian friends? Well, the one person I know who's a non-Christian, this is what we do. But I told him about Jesus. We don't hang out anymore. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's really hard for you to find time to, to have friendships with outsiders. I think you should. But you should be mindful of these questions. And we'll work through them real quickly. So let's look at it. I'm going to have them on the screen. You can write them down if you want. Um, or you can just listen intently. Here's a question. Is it beneficial to me personally and the gospel generally? Because of your identity with Christ, you are called to live in such a way that represents your identity, that you belong to God, and you are His, and He has redeemed you, and bought you back. And the Bible says that you are His possession. He's called you to Himself. And therefore you live differently, you talk differently, you act differently, you, you conduct yourself in a different way. And so the question is generally, is this beneficial for you as a person in your identity with Christ? And is it beneficial to the, the gospel, the character and nature of what the gospel is? Does it represent the truth of God's character and nature well? Think about that. Here's another question. Do I, by my decision, make God look glorious and beautiful, or do I, in turn, slander and belittle his name? So you think about the things that you're involved in in your life, and you ask this question, and what I do, is this disrespecting God? Is this like throwing mud in his face? Is this mocking him? Is this belittling him? Or are the things that I'm doing making him look glorious and marvelous and beautiful as he should be? Next question is, will I lose self-control and be mastered by what I participate in? You may be a person, you're looking for new areas to connect with people at work, right? You're trying to find, what, what way can I spend more time with people at work? I want to build relationships and genuine, real-life friendships with these people. And people go out to happy hour. And they're drinking beer at happy hour. 
And you want to be a part of that. And you want to drink a beer. I'm not going to tell you that that is the wrong thing to do. The Bible doesn't say it's the wrong thing to do. But if after you go out with them, you keep finding yourself waking up in the morning with a new tattoo, and you don't know how you got it, there's a point in this where you are losing your self-control. You're becoming mastered by this by the conduct that they are participating in, and you can't control it. You find yourself going too far. Single friends, people who are single. You have a girlfriend, you have a boyfriend. You guys have a great date together. I encourage you to do that, to spend time together. At the end of the day, what else can we do? Let's watch a harmless, uh, I don't know, Julia Roberts movie with covers on us, turn all the lights down, get some popcorn, tell the roommates to go out. Great, right? That never caused anybody trouble. You find yourself going too far every single time. That's probably not a situation that you can control. There's nothing wrong with it, inherently wrong with spending time with someone who you are affectionate with and enjoy their company and see them as a, a husband or a wife down the road and you want to get to know them. But every time you get into those situations, you find yourself dishonoring God and going too far. Ask that question, will I lose my self-control if I put myself in that situation? You know yourself well. You know what you can handle and what you can't. It is wise to consider that question and unwise to consider the question and then go and do it anyway. Because you know, just like I knew, if you do find that, if you do go in those situations and you think you're going to fail, you're going to fail. It's just going to happen. And it probably happens more often than not. Here's the next question. Will I be doing this in front of someone who I know will fall into sin because of this? You know, this is a hard thing, and there's tension here. It's not always black and white. Christian maturity is demonstrating this. Christian maturity is laying down your freedom to do whatever you want for the benefit of another person. And sometimes you you are called to lay down your freedom so that you don't cause a brother or sister to stumble, to be in in a compromising situation. You might say, but I'm allowed to do this. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not a sin. But if what you're doing is discouraging and causing a brother or sister in Christ to compromise their own conscience, what you are doing is a sin. I remember several years ago, I went with my my future brother-in-law to um, Colorado with a bunch of Christians, right? What could be better? What could be more awesome than hanging out with like 2,000 Christians for a weekend? And after a conference, it was a conference that we went to for a weekend, and we went up, we walked up to the street where there was a, it was a really nice uh, residential area. There were some shops and there were some restaurants and things like that. There were a lot of people I looked up to, a lot of Christians, a lot of people I respected. And we go to this restaurant, and every single one of these guys that I truly loved and looked up to and said, I want to be like them one day, every single one of them was, was drinking alcohol. And I thought that was just like the worst thing in the world. And I remember crying and just emotionally distraught, walking away from that. How could they be doing that? I thought they were Christians. I thought they loved Jesus. How could they all be doing this? And the situation that was going on, I was so immature in my faith. And they didn't know it. They didn't do anything wrong because they didn't know my, my situation. But if they had known my vulnerability, my confusion, 
my lack of maturity in my faith and, and what the Bible taught about and what it didn't teach about, it would have been wrong for them to conduct themselves in that way, even if they just had one beer. It would have been wrong because I was struggling with it. That's the question. Will we be doing this in front of someone that I know is going to fall into sin if we continue to do it? Next question. Is it a violation of the law? This is really easy. Is it illegal? It's amazing that I would even need to include this in the list, but it's true. You can't have a thriving ministry to outsiders if you're in prison. (laughs) It's just that simple. I mean, it's just that simple. I mean, this was the number one thing that I went to when I was in youth ministry. When people would ask me, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do that? And say, so, you know what, this, is, this may be a gray area, but let me stir it up for you. It's illegal. We, don't, we really shouldn't be having the conversation. And then we'd continue, okay, let's talk about, let's say it wasn't, and then say, well, what if it wasn't? What if we passed a law and it was not legal anymore? You know, and then we get into that rabbit hole, and we talk about the conscience, we talk about God's word and things like that. But this is an easy one. If we're con- you know, how we have a ministry to people around us, how we conduct ourselves in wisdom and honoring Christ, we need to ask ourselves, is what we're doing illegal? Is it legal? Number, next one is, if I fail to do this, will I lose opportunity to share the gospel? If you don't do something or if you do do something, think about maturity. Part of maturity is thinking past the situation. Wisdom is thinking about what are the consequences of what I'm going to do. Is it going to help my situation? Is, gonna, is it going to shine a beautiful light in the gospel? Is it going to, is it gonna, am I going to lose credibility and freedom with people around me if I do this or don't do this? Next is, am I doing this to help other people, or am I being selfish? Good question to ask as we think about how we live our life and how we conduct our, our lives. And Everybody's watching all the time. People are watching you. You may not know it, but everybody watches. I mean, Christians, non-Christians, people look and they see your behavior. They see when you're being genuine, authentic, when you're being selfless. They see when you're being selfish and, and, and being bigoted and being prideful and being pompous. They see these things. Can I do this in a way that glorifies God? If you're unsure if what you're doing is wise or not, ask yourself, can I do this and glorify God? And if you're having a really, really hard time trying to figure out how you can do it to glorify God, you probably shouldn't be doing it. It's probably not wise. And lastly, am I following the example of Jesus to help sinners reconcile to God? One thing I hear a lot is that Jesus liked to party, right? Jesus hung out with sinners. The Bible says Jesus hung out with sinners a lot. He was friends with sinners, and he was not friends with the religious leaders. And so people say, Jesus liked to party. That means I'm going to party, and I'm going to party hard. I'm going to hang out with non-Christians. Great, go and do that. He hung out with sinners. He hung out with drunk people. He hung out with partiers. You are right. But every single time Jesus spent time with those people, he called them to repentance. Are you doing that? (laughs) Every single time he left that relationship, and those people left, knowing who he was, knowing the truth of the reconciliation through through, through God, and they either came to a point of repentance or they rejected the truth. But they knew it every single time. People say we should meet sinners where they are. Actually, they say we should meet sinners where they're at. But I don't like ending sentences and prepositions. So, we, we should meet sinners where they are. right? And, and, and that's absolutely important. Jesus meets us where we are. But do we meet people where they are like Jesus did? Jesus meets us where we are, but he never leaves us there. 
If we intend to have a relationship with outsiders and say, I'm just going to meet them where they are, I'm just going to get to know them and what's important to them and love them where they are and never intend to, to take them anywhere else, then we're not acting like Jesus as Jesus acted. And I'm not saying the first time you meet them you need to take them to that place. I'm saying that was Jesus' motivation to always teach the truth, to always teach the good news of salvation through his life and death. And that should be our motivation too. To bring people to reconciliation with God. He spent his time with sinners, but he never used his desire to save them as a license to participate in sin sin himself. Colossians 4, this passage says, Walk in wisdom, making the most of your time. Walk in wisdom, redeeming the time. Ephesians chapter 5 is very similar to Colossians chapter 4. And Paul uses almost the same structure, the same words, the same sentence. He says, Keep watch on how you live, making the best use of your time, for the days are evil. So he says, Keep close watch on how you live, how you walk, how you spend your time. Redeem your time. And the very next next verse, he says, Do not get drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. Does the Bible say, do not get drunk with wine? Yes, it does. Does it say not to get drunk with beer or vodka? Because that's kind of how I like to party. No, it doesn't. It says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Here's the principle. Our conduct, our hearts, our attitudes should flow from an abundance of the Spirit in our life. Not from anything else. And what alcohol can do is it can make us drunk. And then our actions, our hearts, our motivation, our speech is the product of a heart that is not walking with the Holy Spirit, that is not filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, redeem the time. The way that you redeem the time is to be filled with the Spirit. The way that you're filled with the Spirit is being watchful, prayerful, and thankful. The way that you do this is yielding to the Spirit's work in your life. Placing yourself under its guidance, under his guidance, under his authority, under his direction for your life. I have a friend, a close friend, who talks to me and says, I have a lot of, he's a a Christian, he says, I I spend a lot of time with non-Christians, and when I get drunk around non-Christians, they really trust me. And I'm building a relationship with them, and my drunkenness is allowing me to have an opportunity that many Christians will never have. I mean, that's a reasonable rationalization, isn't it? I mean, that sounds legitimate. I mean, and he's probably right. He probably has more opportunity and has more freedom and more privilege to, to be a friend to this person because he gets drunk with them. But we should never use what we might seem as good opportunity for a license to gratify sin, to gratify our flesh, or to not be filled with the Spirit. As we look at the story of Jesus, we see that Jesus was so gracious to outsiders. The truth is, every single one of us in here either are right now or at one point we're an outsider. We're considered an outsider, someone who did not know God. And you know, outsider, I said at the beginning, it's not a dirty word, it's not a bad word, it's not a derogatory word. Well, actually, the Bible actually uses a really harsh word when it talks about people like this. It calls them enemies of God. 
And Paul says at one point, you and I and everyone in here was at one point an enemy of God. But Jesus was gracious to us as outsiders. And he gave us good news and said that if you, if you look up and see me on the cross crucified, and see me and you, and you, you trust in what I have done for you, then what will happen is your entire life will change, your whole identity will change, you will be transformed into my image, and you will have an unending and unbroken connection and bond of union, peace, and fellowship with God forever, and no one can take it away. You will find complete satisfaction and peace with me. No longer a stranger, no longer an enemy, no longer a person wandering around wondering, does anybody care, does anybody love me, does anybody, how am I going to take care of my sin? We don't have to worry, wonder about that anymore. What does Christ do with enemies? He redeems them. He buys them back with his own blood, with his own life. He paid the ransom with his very own body. And that's good news. That's the gospel. Let's reflect on the Colossians in our last couple seconds here. Looking on the book of Colossians, Paul talks about a new life. And he talks about being rooted and steadfast, and founded on the truths of the good news that Christ offers us. And adding nothing to that, and taking nothing away. If we can learn anything from our journey through Colossians, we will see that Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the source for all of our satisfaction, all of our forgiveness of sin, all of our meaning in life, and all of our hope in our death. My prayer for you is that you would see your current circumstances as intentionally placed by God himself. Christ is always redeeming the time, and he says to us now, redeem it with me. Join me in this mission to redeem it, to make the best use of it, to be watchful and prayerful and thankful. People are going to hate you. A lot of people are going to love you. But we have this hope in Christ that lasts forever. And what we can do is to train your head, to train your heart, to know Christ deeply, so that when God presents you with an opportunity, you know what to do, you know what to say, you know how to act. And the outcome of it? Complete joy. God is glorified. And what's better than that? What do you want in our life? I want to have joy. What does God want? He wants to be glorified. As we follow Him and submit to His will and trust in His Holy Spirit to guide us, to transform us, to be watchful on our hearts, these things are accomplished. He promises it. And we can trust in that. And that's what I hope for you. Let's pray together. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.